0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With me, your hosts, Bobby Comporto and Zara Tangora. <laughs> Ooh, we flipped the script there, Bobby. I was you, you are me. Yep. Now we are one. <laughs> um, hey, it's just me
3: and you today. Yes, it was, it was an interesting, a uh, very interesting podcast from inception to uh, process and delivery. I enjoyed yes. it very much. It's it's really somebody had mentioned that they wanted to know more about us. And we thought that if we could just sit down for a while and answer some questions with each other, that our, our listeners would know more about us.
2: Totally. That was a great suggestion from Sheila. And, uh, I feel like I talked a lot, so I'm apologizing in advance. If you do not like the sound of my voice, this is not the episode for you, (laughs) but, um, no, it was great. It was really fun. And it was sweet to sit down with you for a while and we get to we record on a platform that's similar to zoom so we get to look at each other directly in our faces when we're Mm -hmm. talking and you look very cute Mm -hmm. you too bobby records from her office her therapy office and you have all your books behind you and may i say also fabulous lighting much better my lighting is terrible i look like a ghoul but you look beautiful your skin is dewy and your cheeks are rosy and i look reanimated but that's fine anyway um folks we love you and we hope that you enjoy this show of us chatting with each other and giving some of our backstory and bobby had come up with some questions and they were really good questions they were lovely and uh i love you love you too babe okay bye 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 enjoy the show Well, we have a very special episode of Processing today because it's just you and me, Mama. Yes, it is. It's exciting. How's it going? Everything's good.
3: We were just talking about how we had a big rainstorm today and then the sun came out and I particularly enjoyed going outside because the air was so fresh.
2: Yes, the fresh after the rain air. Now, I was mentioning to our producer, Armin, that I have, maybe this will highlight some of the differences within our personality, but... I don't like, I shouldn't, I feel bad saying I don't like. I find myself feeling confused when it, when I start the day off with a rainy day and then it becomes sunny like halfway through the day. And I don't know, cause I'm or I've already gone into rainy day mode of, you know what I mean? Like feeling cozy in the house and um, having like low expectations for my, cause I, I'm also the kind of person that I like when it's nice out. Or even if it's not nice, I always feel like I have to be right. out and doing something, et cetera. So there's something for me about a rainy day that feels like a break, you know? Yep. Like a little bit of much needed low pressure. So on a day like today, I am always like, ah, sun. <laughs> and normally I never don't want the sun. But right. how do you feel? Are you, You're you not the same way. You like when the sun comes out. I guess it depends on how I started my day. I could completely understand. Like It's very rare
3: that I have a day where it's cozy and I don't do much. But if it is, yeah. I don't want it
2: interrupted. So, right. yeah, I agree. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so we're exactly the same. Good to know. Um, all right. Well, guys, today we're going to do a show. We have a wonderful listener and former guest, uh, Sheila, who you guys might remember from a past episode, um, who kind of touched base with me recently and was like, hey, like, I just want to know more about your story. And so I was like, oh, well, we tell kind of tell our story in the first episode and then she's like yeah you kind of do but like it was brief and, and and not a critical way and just I think she wanted to know more about us and I feel like we share parts of us in every episode of course you know we try to connect with the listeners and um and connect with the guest, but um I thought the point was was well made and I really thought it was like a good opportunity to kind of I don't know, for our, ourselves to be more vulnerable and to talk to each other and about our own experiences with food and grief. If, and if anyone is a new listener that maybe hasn't heard our earliest episodes, well, hello. This is, this is who we are. Yeah, This is who we are. This is who we are. So uh, who are we? We are. <laughs> <laughs> we are Bobby and Zara. I'm Zara. And I'm Bobby. And
3: we're mother and daughter and we have many differences and many similarities and one of the similarities we have is that we like to talk about life and we like to talk about loss and we like to talk about feelings and humanity so I think we really share that and I think it's been I think we've had 80 some odd episodes now and I'm everyone I'm astounded and amazed that we have this opportunity together to hear the same story so that it becomes part of our our story and um yeah
2: yeah and another thing we have in common is that we love food and bobby was a chef uh now she is a psychotherapist for how long have you been doing psychotherapy mom for like 35 years 35 years yeah and i was a Um, i was a chef
3: for a good 15 years i guess
2: And what some of you may or may not know, I mean, I guess you can infer from the fact that she worked as a chef and had food businesses with my dad, um, is that Bobby is a fabulous cook. Mm. Getting invited to Bobby's house for a dinner party is like the invitation of a lifetime, really. You're just an amazing cook. And, you know, I think we were talking earlier, just having a conversation that I was just thinking about what makes a good, what makes someone a fabulous cook. And it's not... For me, it's really not about fanciness or fancy ingredients or how much money you spend making something or even how much time. It's just like your intuitiveness and the love that kind of goes into it and your desire to make things nice. And you really have such a capability to make it nice. And I've tried to learn whatever I can from you. Um, But you were telling me, I guess it was like two or three weeks ago. Now you had a couple of your friends for dinner, which had been a long time since Mm -hmm. you got the opportunity to do that because of COVID. And Bobby was just telling you about the menu that she was making. And it was just like, I mean, of course, the food sounded phenomenal that you were making. But like just the way you were talking about preparing it and the time you were taking and the care you were taking and just like you know, talking about your rich lemon sauce that you made for the chicken and the beautiful apple tart that you made. It just, it just is nice. And you're a wonderful cook and you care so much and it really shows. Thank you. Well, it's exciting.
3: First of all, to, to, um, be able to make food. I feel so grateful that I can cook. I feel like it's an important thing like sewing. And I wish I could build things too. and, And gardening, you know, the things that are, um, part of our life that make it richer and better. But I also agree with you. It has a lot to do with intuition. I've never been able to follow a recipe. I'm not a very good rule follower. I always make mistakes. I read it wrong. I see numbers wrong. So (laughs) I I can't follow a recipe. So I love that it's intuitive. But also it does have to do with love. Like when people come, I think about what they like and what their food interests are. But then it's once a caterer, always a caterer. Because I have (laughs) to go. Everything has to kind of go in a way. It just There's a certain um, sensibility. And I also like to be really clean and neat at the end. So I like people to walk in the door and I have literally done everything. You know, it's yes, just done I'm the same way. And it's, it's very important to me. So, but going to your house, which I haven't done in such a long time, you know, not since COVID, not for two years is, uh, I mean, it's remarkable to watch you cook, you know, you're, you're, um, you're, you're a genie. you know you just kind of you do you make magic not just with the way the food tastes but the way you make it you just you just move around and with such ease and naturalness and um and fun you know you just I've every time I love to cook with you it's the most wonderful thing one of my favorites
2: one of my favorite things me too well you know um life is extremely hard and sometimes it's harder than other times. And so I think, and you know, sometimes it feels really nice and it doesn't feel as hard and it's, it's harder for some people, but life can be pretty fucking hard. I agree. And like, we know that from people we talk to, you know, it from like the practice, the work you do, and just from being a person, it's hard. And, and, um, I think, and I've said this before, but like for me, cooking feels special. Cause it's like, um, it's those like little moments of joy. It's like for so many reasons, but you know, the, I mean, first and foremost, the just absolute privilege of having food to be able to prepare and to eat and to enjoy, which is a huge privilege. And it feels real. I feel really lucky every time I am cooking. I'm like, wow, I'm lucky to have these ingredients and be able to like make them. But like, I think like in respect to talking about life being difficult and cooking, it's like, I don't know. We all need a little, something that just makes it fun you know what I mean and when you when you can find those things that get you through whatever it is is. it's different for everyone some people Mm -hmm. it's like listening to music taking a walk like you know just seeing family or whatever but for me Mm -hmm. and especially because uh I'm somebody who you know I live alone I'm single um I I'm definitely experiencing more aloneness than ever because of the pandemic and a lot of my friends moving away. And, you know, my, even though I still feel and look like I'm 21 years old, <laughs> I'm actually 37. So a lot of my friends have gotten married and like, et cetera. So I find myself alone a lot. And one of the ways that I kind of like, you know, get through my life is from like cooking. You know what I mean? It's like a companion to me sometimes. And I don't know that I've often thought of it like that, but I'm making that Mm, kind of correlation
3: right now. Yeah. And I've often said to many people that for me, cooking is meditation. And um, part of that is because the whole absorbing aspect of it from, from thinking about what you're going to make and the ingredients that go into something and shopping for it and the way that everything looks, the vegetables and the colors and, and then the whole process of figuring out how you are going to make it and then making it and the smells. I'm not thinking about a thing except for that. You know, I always say definition of meditation is losing your mind. So I definitely mm. lose my mind when I cook. And when I yeah, cook with too. you, it's squared. It's like losing my mind squared. <laughs> <So>.
2: <laughs> well, we all have to find something that like propels us through the, this life and some people it's God and you know, some people it's cassoulet or a pot of lentils. Um, It's just, so
3: I, I'm sure that, um, you know, being that your dad and I, um, were so involved with food for so many years. Um, and then you and I, and then you and dad, I'm sure that was a major influence for you in your cooking. What were some of the other influences that
2: well, if I'm going to be really honest, and it's funny you asked this because I've been asked this in interviews in the past, and I think the the fact that you and dad were cooks and had a food business, people make the assumption uh, that like my life looked a certain way and that we were all cooking in the kitchen together. And I was like influenced by this and you guys were teaching me. And as much as I wish that that was the real story because it's a beautiful story and it sounds very nice, but it really was not. Um, you know, if I really am to be honest, I think like, I think there's the, the nature in it. You know, I think like the nature of you and dad and grandma and, you know, grandpa on dad's side, your, uh, your mom, when I say grandma, I mean grandma, Vi, um, you know, that is like in my DNA perhaps, but I did not have that experience growing up. You know, you and dad had a divorce. Um, and both of you were, you know, pretty unhappy for a long time and going through, you know, newly single life and you were a single mom and dad didn't have very much money and lived in a little apartment and then, you know, got remarried to not very nice person who she did not like food at all. Wow. So, you know, I don't ever remember with either you or dad sitting around the table and having a meal except for on Thanksgiving. Right. So... When I think I actually really learned to like be interested in food, I watched a lot of TV growing up because I was an only child and I was a little bit of a latchkey kid because, you know, you had to work. And, um, I remember probably around age 10 or 11 when Food Network was first becoming popular, starting to watch Food Network and watching all of those shows, watching the Barefoot Contessa. I'm sorry to say, at the time, watching Mario Batali uh, on Mario, which was a great show, even though he's a horrible person. Um, Bobby Flay, like, just yeah. getting into watching those shows. And even before that on PBS, The Frugal Gourmet, and, like, watching old Julia Child shows, I remember seeing that. And I just think I d- became... Really interested in cooking, by like binge watching television, uh, cooking TV. The creativity of it. And then it was like in me somewhere from who you and dad were. Absolutely. But it wasn't like, it wasn't cultivated by our relationships. You know what I mean? It wasn't something that was hugely present in the home. It wasn't something like, yeah, I was a picky eater. I was a huge pain in the ass as like a kid with eating as I think a lot of kids are, but it wasn't like a, you know, and I think it's important to note, not to, not to like sulk about it or to feel bad about it so much as just to like, um, I think that like when, you know, cause we have a podcast, right. And because sometimes people will do a story on me or something. And I think that there's this um, ideal, Uh, This idea that people who maybe have been, like, successful in X, Y, and Z fields in this place, I'll use food or whatever, have had this, like, really, like, beautiful relationship with it. You know what I mean? There's, like, this way we idealize things. And we think about it as always. And we think of things as black and white, that it's either all one thing or all some or not. Yeah. Exactly. And I just think it's important to mention because uh, people can kind of reach different places they want to go in their lives. um, You know, and I, I don't mean to say this, like pull yourself by your dusty old bootstraps kind of, you know, American idealization kind of thing. That's not what I'm saying at all, because I think it is actually hard to do things in this country for a list of other ways, which we're not going to talk about right now. But I do think it's important to remember that like, you know, everyone's, what I'm trying to say, everyone's path to where they go is different. Absolutely. You know, it can change. It's not always perfect. I think part of what I also hear you say is that, um, we can change direction
3: um, yeah. and we part of that's done with intention. Intention is a very, very powerful word. You know, it means, cause I think we had intention in our relationship it was our intention to find a way to be, um, to find each other again and to be close to each other again, because we had a period where we weren't. And I think that intention, I feel that um, all the time, but I also mostly feel it on our podcasts <laughs> And in yeah, co- and a cooking sure. and in cooking because mm-hmm. when we go in the kitchen, we, I don't think we've ever fought in the kitchen. Seriously. I, I remember us always, you know, Well,
2: like, not like a big <laughs> fight. No, yeah. Oh, you we'll fight, fight over fight about, like, how much lemon shit.
3: to use or how much salt to use, but really we cooperate and it's a beautiful place of cooperation. We have an intention of doing that. So.
2: Um, That's a good point. Yeah. I think that like, if I was to really, be as honest as humanly possible about why I kind of wanted to pursue being, well, not even being a cook before I ever had an idea about doing it professionally, why I wanted to be a good cook. I wanted to be like good at something. And I think a lot of people feel that way for a variety of reasons. And a lot of times it has to do with like your self-worth. And as a kid, I felt like I had almost none, you know, like close to zero, um, and I think I really wanted to be good at something. And I saw like, I think it was like an, uh, so, an unconscious kind of melange of things, of being exposed to watching food TV, having it in my, you know, in my genetic makeup because of who you and dad were. Yeah. Um, and then just feeling like, oh, well, this is something I guess I could be good at because it, it made sense to my brain. Right. So it wasn't like I didn't practice and practice at cooking to try to be good. It was just came kind of naturally. But right, I think right. I leaned into it because I wanted to be good at something. And it was great. And as I got older and older and kept cooking more to have people be like, oh, my God, you're such a good cook. I really felt oh, good. Yes. I think I needed a boost, you know, for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for my ego (laughs) feeling really poorly about myself for a long time and it it helped in that way to feel like you're good at something but the counter to that is that you have to learn how to kind of manage that as an adult you know what i mean because that is not necessarily like the most pure of intentions for doing things you don't want to keep seeking it
3: exactly um but i wonder i was just thinking so those are your influences what were the most flavors that influenced you the most
2: Oh, well, I mean, number one, lemon, of course, as you just mentioned earlier, lemon, Bobby and I used to call each other or ourselves the lemon heads, right? Yeah. Mom. Yeah. Yeah. So lemon. You love extra lemon. Extra lemon um, on everything. So, uh, and, and growing up in Long Island and, you know, my dad's family was Italian, uh, half Italian. And um, just being in Long Island in general, you have a lot of Italian-American food. And so that kind of really, uh, really stuck with me. It's always been my favorite. It's always been the thing I'm interested in cooking and making and eating, you know, on those days when I'm thinking like maybe feeling bad and I'm like, oh, I can't think of eating anything. I could always eat spaghetti with marinara sauce, you know.
3: What about you? Well, I was just thinking that I I kind of shifted thought a little bit. I was thinking about how cooking is actually it takes a lot of effort and it's actually really hard work and cooking professionally as we both have done is very very hard work and I learned that I really love to work hard Mm. I'm a workhorse I was a workhorse when I had my food business and I'm a workhorse as a therapist and I and when I have a dinner party that's why I make everything I mean I make it I buy nothing it's because I love to work (laughs) so it's like creative work
2: yeah You know, I think that I used to, used to think that I like to work hard because I thought like I had to do a lot of figuring it out as I first got into the restaurant business when I was 26 and we'll go over maybe like how I even got there in the first place, but I had no experience and I was opening my own restaurant for the first time. And so I kind of like, you know, (laughs) I read kitchen, Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, and I looked at what the tropes of chefs should be and that they should work a million hours and be kind of an asshole, although I'm not instinctively a huge asshole. I'm actually kind of a softie, but, you know, I can be hard. So I think I convinced myself because of what I thought it took to be a chef that I loved to work hard or that everyone else around me should be working hard or there's some kind of virtue in working a 90-hour work week. And, like, I've come to realize in the past half decade or so, but more and more each day. And especially since the pandemic that I, I, can't, I have a good work ethic and I like to be busy and I like to put myself into what I believe in doing responsible, but I don't mm-hmm. like to work hard mm-hmm. and I don't think that anyone else should work hard <laughs> either. And I don't think it's that so that, that is a sign of being Um, a valuable person because I think one of the things and this is not to negate what you're saying because I understand what you're saying and there is a value to being and it is certainly if you're someone who likes working hard that's great but I think that we've somehow tied the desire and love for working really hard and really long to like being a better kind of person and really like There's so much other stuff to do with your life other than work. Yeah, well, it reminds
3: me of um, Michael Moore's movie, Where to Invade Next. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful documentary where he talks about um, different countries around the world and and their different work ethics. And not that they are not responsible people, but they also believe in leisure. And they also believe in rest, you know? And so I think that's part of what I hear you saying.
2: Well, yeah, and just having, I think the... American, I mean, I won't get into a huge rant about socialism now, but like the American ideal of hard work is really like a product of capitalism of like the upper tier telling the lower tier that like, you'll, you know, just keep working and working. And one day you can be a billionaire essentially. And so it's kind of a lie we're being fed, but I don't think that's what you're saying actually, no, if, I'm may yeah. and tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah. I think that sometimes like when I think of you as a young person with dad, and just trying to make it and trying to do... You guys had this super creative, amazing, fun, and really difficult business. And you were young. And you were just, like, throwing yourselves into something. And we and didn't also, know what we were doing either. Right. And also, working hard can be a way to cope with other things being shitty. It's also community. It's like how you have talked about kitchens.
3: You're working right, in a exactly. kitchen. It's community. It's... Um, um, it's it's strength you and I think that I found you know it's interesting when you said that about wanting to be good at something I think I felt that when I was young too like I wasn't really good at anything I wasn't good at sports I wasn't good at music I wasn't a great student you know I really wasn't good at much (laughs) but I when I started the food business it wasn't just the cooking part it was working hard that's what I felt I was good at yeah and so I take pride in that and I and I I think that's the reason why I do it. It just feels right for me. It's it's like, I don't garden a lot, but I could imagine digging up a whole thing and planting a garden. I know my friends have a farm and I watch how hard they work and I, I admire that. And I could see if it wasn't what I do do, I'd be doing something like that. I just like yeah. to work hard.
2: Well, I think yeah. now in your line of work that you do also, there's so much reward to working hard because each hour that you work you're helping another person with a really kind of traumatic life event and helping them get to the other side of like some really big stuff so I think it makes sense and I'm not trying to diminish what yeah, you're saying yeah, at all yeah. but like yeah, you know, work hard it's just yeah. interesting yeah. kind of thing to think about and I've always thought the same way too and now I really try to like enjoy my time when I'm not working and even set limits on myself and I'm a busy person I have a lot of projects going on I do a lot of stuff and I try to be like okay, it's 8 p.m. You need to stop working now and you need to like go relax. And uh, I just, you know, I think it's just, this isn't even what we were like planning to talk about, but I I do think that like working, um, I hope that people through this pandemic, and I know it's a lesson that I've taken, learn to look at the whole picture of their life and what they are working hard for. And I think that sometimes working hard, extra hard, has other meaning to it. You know what I mean? Yes. But I also believe, as you know,
3: that you work harder than you play hard because I'm famous, <laughs> famous for playing hard. That's true. You, you know, I, 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 work, I work four full, full, full days a week, you know, from the early morning until at night when I finish my paperwork. And then on the weekends, I don't do any work. I literally yeah. don't clean my house. I don't do errands really. I play. I love to take rides. I love to, you know, look at beautiful nature, you know, yeah, you have I, a good balance, yeah. but it's You're a an odd balance. It's all or nothing kind of a balance. Yeah. 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 So I was going to ask you some questions. I thought maybe we could ask some questions of each other, and that might be a Shoot. way to learn more about our, um, about our histories. So I was going to yeah. ask you what the most defining experiences of your childhood, your adolescence and your adulthood.
2: Hmm. Well, uh I'd say the most defining experiences of my childhood, uh let's see. Well, um we grew up very broke. And that's fair to say, right? I on air. We grew up very broke. Um and we lived in dad's parents house. and um, grandma and grandpa as, grandpa, a, child, grandpa, Donna, as a child. Grandma Helen, as a child. And dad lived in the basement. Because I had gone bankrupt. We had gone bankrupt. That's why. And it was hard. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was weird to feel almost like it didn't feel like a house. Like it didn't feel like our home. You know what I mean? And those are some of my first memories. And then pretty much immediately after that, you and dad got divorced and, So that is a big deal. And it's funny because up until I was probably 25, I was always like, it wasn't a big deal for me. My parents' divorce. I was so young, it didn't matter. And it really did, you know? And, And it's hard when that happens because your whole idea about love and security and everything really gets all fucked up. And you start building resentment towards people, towards your parents that you wish you didn't have or maybe you didn't even know that you had. And then you get older and realize they're just people and that everyone tries their best. And sometimes we don't get it right. So I feel like, um, you know, I guess the divorce and living in two separate houses with two very different parents. And as I mentioned earlier, I had a very, very, uh, unkind stepmother and I spent half the week over there and she was deeply unkind and unempathetic and kind of cruel. And so that was hard. And so I think some of the things that I feel like define my childhood is like a large feeling of being unwanted wherever I went in some way. Um, And that was tough. Yeah, it was really hard. And then in my adolescence, I guess, you know, I became really angry and didn't really have, um, good boundaries and just created a lot of tension between you and I. You were angry. Yeah, I was angry. And, um, but somehow it all shook out okay. And I think part of the reason why is because I went to school at FIT and by no means am I saying that that was like a salvation because I was a terrible student I went to school for (laughs) fine arts and like you know wrote graffiti and like ran around the city or whatever but it made like it was just an opportunity for me to feel like I could kind of start over and our relationship improved and we really started like hanging out and like it really it was good I got out of the house I felt independent i think i needed that you never came back i mean you didn't ever move back that was the yeah i jumped there. into my independence and i lived in my own apartment i lived alone at like you know you age 19 yeah <laughs> and i think i would just you know i think the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my life was living in new york city i belong here i feel that very much so um i adore it it's the love of my life that says a lot about you yeah, and so um like I'm defensive about it. Like when people are like, Oh, I'm leaving New York and New York is over, mm-hmm. I like get mm-hmm. very angry. <laughs> very- um so that was hugely defining. And then when I was twenty-two twenty, 20 twenty-one, I was 21, twenty-one, I got into a terrible accident. I was traveling with a friend of mine who is a really accomplished musician. His name is Mr. Liff. He asked me, or to me, he's, he's Jeffrey Haynes. Um, he asked me to go on tour with him. I was a young kiddo and he wanted me to sell merch and I was going to make money. And, you know, we were going all over the country with this other group. And it was just like the coolest thing. I felt so cool. It was so exciting. It was this big adventure. And like four days into it, um, we were going from San Diego to... Arizona and the bus driver of the tour bus fell asleep at the wheel and drove us off a 40 foot cliff in the middle of the desert and a beer bottle broke in my hand. The bus exploded. Um, Nobody died. Thank God. Um, But my hand got pretty fucked up and it got fixed. And that was the most, probably the biggest, like, you know, uh, that would be in the trailer, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. if we were making this into a movie because everything changed from there yeah. I got money I didn't know exactly what to do with it at first but um, then I decided that I would open a restaurant with it and that I was never a chef before I just became a chef because this happened and because I liked to cook and I was yeah. good at it yeah. and I've told this story so many times that it does almost doesn't feel like my own anymore and I don't know It was really bizarre. Moment in time that changed Um, your life. And then of my adulthood, I think that some of the defining kind of experiences and feelings are about... uh, Well, my dad died when I was 34. And it broke my heart so badly. I really loved him. And even still, I still like... Sometimes, like today, I was like, I can't believe my dad died when I was 34. You know, it's sad. And uh, I guess, like, I mean, that's why I wanted to start the show because, like, you know, I didn't want to be one of those people who are like, How are you? And I'm just like, like, I couldn't. After my dad died, like, everything else fell apart. I was so upset. I was destroyed. And, like, I just couldn't be like, When people are like, How are you? I was like, I'm terrible. I'm terrible. Everything is just dissolving. Like, and my dad died and my boyfriend broke up with me and I had to move home. I found out I had a long lost brother who turned out to be awesome, but still it was like too much. I was like, I'm yeah. losing my fucking mind. Yeah. And so I was like, God, people shouldn't be able to say this, you know? Cause then I got my mind back little by little. And that happens too. We get it back sometimes. Hopefully. Yeah. So In closing, and I realize I'm talking an awful lot, and I would like to (laughs) flip the mic on you. but um, I think that like, I'm 37, I think my 30s, the later part of my 30s have been about, especially since dad died, is learning to use the things that have happened to me in my life for good instead Mm -hmm. of evil. Yes. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I don't mean evil, but I just mean like, how do I use all this? So it's useful. So it's good for myself and other people, you know,
3: instead of imploding, you know, to just find what to express it. And you're so creative and so expressive. I mean, you're amazing. So that's what it's all about. We use the experiences that happen in our life to express ourselves, to, to, to turn it out into the world. And yeah.
2: I think I had a thought that many people have, which is especially hurt people, which is that I know all, I know everything, you know what I mean? And that like, my intentions are good. So whatever my output is, doesn't necessarily matter. And I think I realized a couple of years ago, maybe five years ago, that that's simply not enough. You know what I mean? Is that like your intentions and your actions need to align in their, uh, in their, like, their virtue their virtue and um I'm trying to do that so that's me (laughs) what about Mm. you mom what were the most kind of defining moments of your life well I think um and I've talked
3: about this on the show before the most defining experience of my childhood was my mom's history because being a first generation child of a holocaust survivor um impacted me in ways unconsciously and consciously but Not just her pain, but also her culture. She was from another country. She had an accent. I just love that about her. And she just was so, um, you know, she was a wonderful mother. And uh, so was a childhood, but there was a lot of drama uh, that I didn't know about because I was very young. Um, I had a sister that died when I was two in a car accident, half sister. Um, My other half sister um, was in turmoil. Um, My half brother was ha- also in turmoil, having um, mental breakdowns and all kinds of things. So all this was going on while I was growing up, and I had this kind of protected life, but yet all around me in my whole history, there was so much trauma and so much loss and pain. And I grew up with my half-sister, Flo, who had so much pain. You know, to this day she does. And um, I think that was that definitely influenced my growing up, you know. Um, also, I grew up the defining element that my mother and father were very much in love. And that's just contrary to what you were saying, how painful it is when your parents split up. My parents really loved each other. And so I learned about that in a very deep way. Um, I think the most defining experiences of my adolescence were was my loneliness. I was an only child. Um, and I think I started to feel the trauma of my of my family when I was an adolescent, you know, that's when I started to realize that I had, I had experienced and learned about some really, really difficult, painful stuff, but still, my parents were both cultured. Um, my father was a dentist, but he really wanted to be an artist and he, um, he made beautiful furniture. He'd be downstairs in our basement, making the most beautiful things. And my mother, um, was learned to be an interior designer. She taught herself, went back to school, and so she always had um, fabric samples and she, the two of them loved um, mid-century uh, furniture and stuff and they had great furniture in the house. And my father loved music and they loved comedy. My father was um, a socialist, um, agnostic, actually atheist. And so I always say that that was a defining thing of my adolescence because I really, although I was taught that I didn't have to fit in I felt lonely, not fitting in. Like I didn't
2: fit, I didn't fit in
3: with school.
2: Did you not fit in because you were Jewish when there was a lot of Well, that was part of it. I was
3: about to say that I didn't fit in because everybody else had families, you know, families and big families and stuff like that. And I just, um, I think again, the trauma that came, you know, early childhood, not my childhood, as much as my mother's and what happened to her, um, really really impacted the way I saw myself now that I think about it um but then there was just all this culture my father ended up sculpting he, he was sculpting my mother started to paint and so, so cool. it was and they they took me to shows and I remember listening to Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce and wow know, that's cool yeah so that was that was good stuff you know and food then this food started in you know because my mom was always a good cook she she grew up um um You know, in Yugoslavia, so she had the Eastern European background, but she also, her first husband was a baker. So she, um, not that she baked, but she just had a sense of food and stuff like that. And then the most defining experiences of my adulthood, I guess, was having a business, having Love and Oven, which was, um, we talked about it before, It's very hard work. It was incredibly creative. Your dad was, next to you, the most creative person I've ever known in my life. And um, I was just, he turned me on to everything, music, all kinds of things I had never known before. And having Love & Oven, we were very creative. It was, um, we called it try a piece of the world's cuisines because we we never traveled. We couldn't afford to travel, but we studied um, all kinds of cuisines. We had African samosas and... Um, lots of Mid Eastern food and um, Asian food and just every kind of food that we could think of. We brought it to our business and the business was bright and bold and interesting and colorful and different and funky. And we always had great music playing. So that was an amazing, amazing influence on, on my life. And then failing was the the mm. next best um, influence on my point. life. That's a good point. That was yeah, a good thing for me too, just, being yeah. a, having a big failure. Oh Yeah. I mean, you know, both of us went bankrupt. You went bankrupt, yeah. I went bankrupt. And I always tell this story. I think I may have told it on one of the podcasts, but we um, were leaving Florida. Our business failed there. We lost $250,000. We were driving back um, with, with you and every bit of our belongings, which was not much because we had to sell everything. And we had one trunk on the top of the car and we stopped in North Carolina at a motel and we couldn't bring the trunk in. So we left it on the top of the car. And when we came out, somebody had stole it. So everything, we had nothing, but, but, um, it was the experience of failing and realizing that I'm not a failure having to come to that place that at first you feel like you're the failure. And then you realize, no, it's something I did that failed, but I'm not a failure. And I was able to go back to school at that point. And, um, it was incredible. And I got scholarships to go back to school because I told my story of what had happened. Um, I got you scholarship to go to private school only because I just told the story of what I had learned.
2: And, Which was another defining moment, not to interrupt, but for me uh, is going to private school with all these rich kids <laughs> as a really broke family <laughs> and everyone else was like, you know, really, really rich and we were really, really poor, but it was, and, that was an interesting time. And
3: so and then being able to, I call it the rise of the Phoenix, you know, because really, I mean, we crashed and burned. Like you say. we had to go back and live in um, your dad's parents' house, which is a very small little house. We had nothing. We um, were ashamed. But going back to school from that place, because Uh, I went back and finished my um, college degree at Empire State College, and then I went to social work school. And that was unbelievably defining experience for me because my first teacher was on the staff of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And I began, immediately got into the con- you know, working with death and dying. And that was the next, you know, major defining experience of my life was working in hospice, mm. you know, and how that affected me because that led me to Buddhist psychology and to the whole concept of, of, of dying, letting go, um, accepting, just everything. I learned so much from that experience. And then just being a therapist every single day, adds to who I am you know so
2: that's Mm. that's me beautiful beautiful story mom um well who are some of the most influential uh people oh actually you had written this question and I read it wrong but I like it better how you wrote it because it's specific which is interesting who are the three most influential people in your life I guess I
3: have to say my mother and I've explained why because um, her of her resilience and her, her be able, being able to survive the worst of things. Um, the second most influential person in my life is um, um, I guess I have to say John kabat um, studying with him and learning about mindfulness and what it meant, you know, and, and, I'm using that as the core of how I work. You know, I work with mindfulness and psychotherapy and mindfulness and grief. And the third most influential person in my life is Zara Tangora.
0: Zara Ray
3: Ray Tangora. And I say that and I don't just say that, you know, to be cute or kind or anything like that. But every day you teach me things about myself, about humanity, about um, honesty, you're the most honest person I've ever met about um, inclusivity about um, just so many things about food, you know, and about love, because every day I love you more and more. And I, I'm not just saying this to, you know, I really mean it from the bottom of my heart. So, yeah. So that's what I would say. How about you? Who are,
2: What are the three most influential people in your life? Well, I'm going to put you and dad in the, as one because you're my parents. And for very different reasons, obviously. Um, as Bobby has kind of alluded to before, um, my dad, John, was such a creative person. And it was, uh, it's funny, I just finished listening to this ridiculous book, which I highly recommend, but is so ridiculous. It was called um, Hollywood Hellraisers. And it's about the life and times and and romances of um, Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando, uh, Warren Beatty, and um, Dennis Hopper. And Dennis Hopper. And it's funny because the memory, the stories about Dennis Hopper are just that he was so wildly creative and so. Uh, incredibly intense and had such an eye for so many things like art and music and acting and everything. But he was an, in, way, in many ways, an awful crazy person. <laughs> and it's not that I want to say that dad was like Dennis Hopper necessarily, but he had a bit of that in him. You know He's a mean? rebel. He was create- He's a rebel. Yeah. But he was also just like, um, his creativity in a way for dad. And I think almost to no fault of his own, I think part of it might've been due to a certain kind of mental illness. Um, that his creativity was like paramount for him. You know what I mean? Before anything else. So, but he was incredible and he was a great cook and he was so fucking funny. Dad, to me, had the best sense of humor of anyone ever. Just really like great timing, great timing and really just like, uh, great taste. He had excellent, excellent, excellent taste. Um, Although he did eat uh, cottage cheese with chopped meat and ketchup (laughs) on it. (laughs) And then you, of course, because for so many reasons, you also have excellent taste and you also are whip smart and so funny. And just my best friend and a wonderful mom and a great person. And so you guys are number one. And then number two would be Grandma Vi, your mom. Who was just a class act and also funny. There's a theme here. Oh yeah, I appreciate a good sense of humor, <laughs> especially, especially dirty jokes. Sorry, okay. she's the one that's yes, she told you, dirty, dirty jokes. for yeah. an old Yugoslavian woman. Yeah. Um, but uh, Grandma was a survivor. Literally, she was a Holocaust survivor, and that was evident in her personality. And she just was a classic character. She was really, really great. She wasn't zany. She was demure, but yes. classic. Because um, I think a lot of times when you say a classic character, someone pictures like her friend Lee Shenley, for instance, who was zany and had wacky hair and wore crazy outfits and stuff like that, who was also wonderful. But she's not an influential yeah, person. Classic, <laughs> and, classic and classy. Yeah, Vi was awesome. Um, and I really like, uh, you know, I like to paint. I learned that from Dad. I like to... Any space that I've been in, even the smallest little studio crappy apartments I've been in, I like to make them special. And I learned that from Grandma. And then, I guess, Nora Ephron. (laughs) Again, amazing sense of humor. um, And incredible, the way that Nora Ephron talks about food and cooking and living life in New York City. I mean, she's a New York City icon. And in a lot of ways, really, um, my ideas about what I thought being a New York City person came from Nora Ephron. And so, yeah, those are my three. Mm,
3: Wow. Yeah. So I was also wondering, actually, I was going to ask you what you're most afraid of, but I know the answer already, so it's not even. (laughs) um, But
2: um, what gives you strength? Hmm. Well, that's a great question. Um, what gives me strength? Um I'm trying I know the answer, but I'm trying to figure out a way to verbalize it. I guess in some way, the what gives me strength is the very reason why I wanted to start this show in the first place, which is that it's the fact that everything changes. And um, I hesitate to give motivational advice, like, don't worry, someday it'll get better or it'll get so bad. And then someday look back and everything's better because it doesn't always happen like that. It doesn't always go from like this lowest moment to like a highest moment. And sometimes like the lowest moment lasts for like a really right, right, exactly. fucking long time. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, but everything changes. Like whether it changes a lot or a little, you know, it does There's surprises that happen. Um, There's unexpected things that happen. So that gives me strength, that idea. And like, I actually have to say it out loud to myself sometimes because I get depressed. I do. I'm actually going through about a pretty bad depression right now. And sometimes I have to like look in the mirror and be like, everything changes. It just does. This... Funnily enough, one of my most recent ex-boyfriends, we broke up, like Jesse, uh, he just, sometimes people say these very simple things and like, they're not necessarily like these really profound things or whatever. The person isn't like a huge prolific, uh, whatever thinker, but, um, he would always say no feeling is final. And I just always, I always think that. So that gives me strength. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, different things in different ways. Like, I try to keep my body physically strong. You know what I mean, and take good care of it. So that actually really helps. I notice yeah. when like I don't feel physically strong, like if I'm not exercising for like a, a week or two or something, I start to feel. You know, so that actually personally really helps me. Um, and then you know, friends and family it's hard to do it alone and yeah. I really have so much compassion and so much empathy for people who really do have to do it alone. Um, it's hard, really hard. And actually that's one of the things that scares me the most because as a single person and thinking about like, as you get older, you know what I mean? Um, you know, if you're unpartnered, like it's scary to think of like, Oh my God, will one, will I one day be alone? You know what I mean? And
3: that's hard. Hmm. We would win how we would win the matching game because I had the same two thoughts about what I'm most afraid of is loneliness. And um, what gives me strength is the concept of change. So we have exactly the same thought on that. I was thinking about two things that Grandma used to say. She used to always say this this too shall come to pass. I know whenever something cute. was bad. And then she used to say, the sky cannot always be blue. Sometimes a little rain must come before the sun comes shining through. <laughs> so I realized that she was trying to teach me about change, that change happens and that there's, that um, nothing stays forever. It's all a process. And yeah. it's interesting. We didn't know what the name of the show was going to be. And then um, some of the special people at HRN um, had helped us come up with this name and it's perfect for the podcast because everything is a process. Yeah, that's true. And that's what change is about.
2: You know, I also feel like for me, and I hope that some of our listeners feel this way too. And that's why I want to do the show is because hearing other people's stories of like what they're going through, what they've been through. Like I'm really into history. I really, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I like, you know, I think there's, um, and there's a lot of answers to this question. It's veering off a little bit, but sometimes people ask, you know, why do pe- why is true crime so popular? You know what I mean? Um, and in a way, like hearing about the worst things that happened, particularly like survival stories or how people get past the worst pain and oh, in all a traumatic things. way. <laughs> yeah. But like that is strengthening. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, it is. It is uh, under, getting a better understanding of of the human condition and of people's amen.
0: circumstances and
2: the things in life that they go through and can overcome or I don't know just what's out there. It's just amen. I, I feel. The I, I think having the same an way. open mind and heart helps. Mm-hmm. It helps. Yeah, but you know, it's it's hard. Strength finding strength is really hard sometimes. Yeah. and I also think it's important. Like I always like, to advocate for, um, the times when you can't, I think that, uh, kind of in tandem with the hard-working thing, uh, again, I don't mean to knock hard-working, but I think you know what I'm trying to say, um, is, like, the ideal of, like, staying strong and being strong and being, like, you know what I mean? It's all so, sort of part of, like, a certain package, which is that, like, I like to think of it more, like, it's totally fine not to be strong or have strength sometimes, Just, and it's Oof. totally okay to it has not, to be not work better hard be, sometimes it better you be you know what i mean it better be. yeah so i think giving yourself a break about it actually allows you to have more of the kind of su- self-support that you need well that's because self-acceptance and
3: self-compassion are the most important things as human beings that we need to have it's more important than strength
2: right sometimes like one thing that i learned from my therapist and i'm sure this is something you probably go through with your clients sometime is just like looking at your kid self and being like giving that person like a hug and being like, it's okay. And it sounds corny if you've never done it or never, never thought about it, but like that is strengthening sometimes too, is like, except like, because in doing that, you're like acknowledging that there is some kind of like, you know, lineage to how this all came to be. Why are you feeling this it's way? Self, you know what it's I mean?
3: Self-compassion. It's really really self-compassion yeah, exactly you are. But it actually brings us to a question which we might want to close our show with today, which is we always ask our guests if you could go back to your child self and um give any piece of some advice or something wisdom that you have learned in your life throughout your life. What advice the important thing is I do this with my clients too you have to really picture your child self. You have to picture that part of you, probably the wounded part or the lonely part or the scared part. And and, and you as the adult that has faith, because we've been talking about faith, like what gives us strength is what gives us faith. So with that sense of strength and faith, how you could, what you would say to the child.
2: I would say um, to keep your mind open and to, um, never, ever, ever double down on the things that you've said or done that weren't the right thing. You know what I mean? To, to be able to be humble and to be wrong and to say you're sorry to yourself and others and To not have the expectation that because you weren't perfect and you didn't get it right at certain points, that doesn't mean you can't in the future, and then it's a done deal. Um, Don't cancel yourself, even if other people do in whatever way. And to stay hungry for new information, you know, Um, because it's helpful and it's healing and stay curious. I think being curious is deeply important to me at least. And it goes a long way in terms of like understanding yourself better and understanding other people better. And it helps when things are hard to be curious. Mm. Beautiful.
3: You know, I'm realizing often the guests on our show tell us afterwards that they feel like they learned something or they almost felt like they had therapy. I just had an awareness of something in answering this question that is my own therapy. It's it's incredible. So what, it? what I would go back, I tried to think of the little girl and what was the most what was my 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 negative belief about myself and what was the hardest thing for me. I was afraid. I had fear as a child and I think that as I started off talking about it, it came out of the trauma, my mother's fear and all the trauma of things that happened and her sister dying and all that stuff. I was afraid so I think I would go back. And I used to say this in hospice when I worked in hospice, that my job was to hold the faith. And what I meant by that was to hold the process. And that has to do with change again. Because to, know, to I would tell that little girl, don't be afraid because everything changes. Someday your daughter will tell you and tell those listeners that change is the thing that we can trust and believe in because everything changes, and she didn't know that my little girl was so scared. I had migraines, I had everything you could imagine. I was so scared, and I would just look at her and say, It's okay, everything changes, have faith. And the concept of faith is hope. Hmm. So. That's beautiful, Bobby.
2: Hmm. I love you, you're so I love cute. You. <laughs> you're so cute, too. I'm wearing a new hat. Oh, very nice. I decided yeah. I needed to keep my head warm and that I know somebody would be very, very <laughs> disappointed to know if I was entering the fall and winter season without a head warmer. So I've purchased <laughs> yeah, this new yeah, wool babe. hat. Um, so we also always talk about what we would share as a meal. And I feel like this is an an easy one because sometimes, you know, when we're enduring a guest and we're trying to talk about putting the meal together, we're like, well, we don't know this person's taste at all. How are we going to put a meal together with them? It always ends up fun. But for me and you, it's like, this is much more. So what are we going to make? Because we can actually do this. We can achieve this. Well, let's, let's think of Thanksgiving dinner. So (laughs)
3: let's, um for this feast that we're gonna have of Thanksgiving because we are so grateful. We are so grateful. So let's have a seafood tower. Yum! I know you have a tower. I know you have a tower. We can put I do put Yeah,
2: I will bring the tower of terror. So what should we put on the tower? Shrimp. Yes. Oysters. Yes. Little bits of crab. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny, tiny bits of little crabs. Ooh, um, and I'd like to put... I like smoked oysters.
3: Oh, okay, yummy. They'd be good on there. And I like oysters Rockefeller. I make, I make very good, very good. You do, that's true. Okay, so we'll have
2: that. And then what will we have else? I like pickled mussels. I was thinking of that too. Okay. Um. Okay, fabulous. That sounds great. And then I love... As much as I love getting creative, we sometimes get to do fun, funky things with Thanksgiving. To be frank, um, I love a classic Thanksgiving. Like just stuffing, mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, green beans, like a nice turkey. I don't know the last time we ever did that was. So yeah. that's a fun thing. So we'll do that this year.
3: Okay, great. And then? And Bobby's chocolate mousse pie. Okay. Sounds good. And then Rob has to make his key lime pie because he's so cute when he cooks. Oh my he, god! He basically- Bobby's
2: husband Rob, <laughs> who is the sweetest man, like doesn't cook at all, and he makes. But he he allegedly, and I've never tried oh, it, makes his famous key lime so pie. cute!
3: He measures every little crumb of everything, which is which makes me laugh. And he and he, and he, and he- what a dork and he just figures out cute. as we do each time how to make it better and how what how to improve it and he's so proud of it and so he would so we'll have those two pies. Okay. Sounds absolutely phenomenal. But most of all it's to to the gratefulness of not just having each other and having um all that we have all the fortunes that we have in life. But um you know just the gratefulness of being alive.
2: Yeah. We're lucky. It, it's Yeah. Well, I feel lucky to be here getting to sit and talk with you. And, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And, uh, thanks mom for being vulnerable and taking an hour. It flew by. I can't even believe it's over, but, and thank you to Sheila for suggesting this episode. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Well, we love you guys and, uh, happy Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving and take care of yourselves and each other.
1: Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Aarti Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you, My Family Recipe, from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and it was,
2: they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing
1: else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love.
2: Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you.
1: Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.